Welcome to LilyPod episode 87, Mindfulness with Dr. John Brailsford. Jeff and Kathy Teichert, bringing you another episode of LilyPod, a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches, authors of the Amazon bestseller Intentional Courtship, and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Hi, uh, LilyPod listeners. Uh, we are here with another uh, interesting and special episode of LilyPod, and we are happy to have as our guest, Dr. John Brailsford, who is um, uh, both a PhD in family relations and human, human development from Florida State University, and has been a licensed marriage and family therapist for 23 years. So he has the academic and the practical side of his profession. Uh, he's now working as a therapist at Logan River Academy, also creating an emotionally supportive community called One Mind Tribe for people who are looking for more than, than self-help but don't necessarily need therapy. Uh, John likes to hike and travel and does music theater as a hobby and is the father to what he describes as four amazing grown-ups and is also an aspiring author. So John, uh, welcome to the program and uh, we're happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be here. Now, when we talked initially about doing this interview, there was, um, we had a few different ideas, but I think the, the topic we settled on was lessons uh, in mindfulness we can learn from divorce uh, that will teach us how to contribute to a happy marriage in the future. Um, so why don't you introduce that topic and let us know kind of what okay. your interest in that is. Yeah, so uh, I would say most of my career, I, I, I guess over a career, we get different specialties. You know, some of them are in the kind of uh, problems that we address as therapists, but some of them are also in the approaches that we use to help people. And of all the approaches that I've explored that has helped me personally the most and what seems to help my clients the most has been mindfulness-based strategies. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear that, they think we just meditate together in a room. But um, the way therapy works, we kind of break it out into, you know, if you were to become, you know, a Zen master, what would be the skills you would develop internally that would help you be more resilient? and uh, patient and um, kind to others, you know, those kinds of things. And, and, uh, and so that's, that's what we discuss in therapy is kind of like how to develop those skills. Um, and there are a few of them that I teach. And a lot of them I've seen in action as I've gone through life, uh, both the ups and downs of marriage and the struggles of divorce. Um, you know, and I learned in some ways that I was already doing really well at some of them. And in other ways, I learned that I really wasn't, 
you know, practicing what I was studying and sharing. Um, and so it gave me opportunities to grow from those experiences. And I like to think that it propelled me forward rather than pushed me back. I think the key to that is having self-awareness and being honest with yourself that, hey, you know what, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't what I, uh, what I am, was meant to be, you know, that I could do better. So, um, but as long as you have that, I think it's a constant progression, um, you know, toward perfection, even though you know, that may be something that, in fact, that'll definitely be something for the next life. But, but while we're here, I think we can at least move along that path, so. Yeah. Well, I think one of the cool things about having you as a guest is because you're a mid-single. You've experienced divorce. You know right. a lot of what our audience is dealing with and, and you have the skills, the education and the experience as a therapist too. And I think I've heard you mention on other podcasts, which I've always enjoyed hearing you talk, oh, um, but I've heard you say that even those challenges have helped you be a better therapist. Yeah. Yeah, and I think even my my clients will recognize that. That, um, and I think one of the ways they recognize that is sort of an even handedness. Um, the exception would be in cases where there is a really definite toxic partner, you know. And then I think I'm more inclined to be really um, forthright. Um, I will even fire clients that are doing damage and being abusive. Maybe not in the way, obviously, if someone has bruises on, on their body, you know, obviously that's something that, I mean, that's criminal and, and that's not something I'm going to work with, but sometimes the bruises are emotional. And so I'll set a firm boundary there, but I would say in most cases, that's not what people are coming uh, to therapy to deal with, um, even though they may be hurting each other, but I wouldn't call that necessarily abusive per se. Um, but the even handedness, I think, is what they mentioned, you know, that you seem to understand me who's dealing with this kind of struggle in this relationship, but also the other person who's struggling with something different in the relationship and kind of noticing that pattern. And um, but there are other things, too. You know, I think sometimes it's just the ability to have compassion for any suffering, you know, and and in that sense, you know, I think my, my suffering has helped me. I actually that. have a quick follow-up question. What, cause we've had this come up a lot lately and I would love your take on this. What is mm -hmm. the difference, or at least how do you see the difference between abusive behavior and your hurtful behavior? What's, what's your definition? Of so I would define it two ways, you know, one is what's coming out of one person, you know, the, let's say the person who's being hurtful, you know, because even if someone handles it well with resilience doesn't mean it's not abusive, you right. know, and so, um, but then also something that might just be hurtful to most of us might feel abusive to someone who's not particularly resilient. The, the question is, is there damage being done, you know, and um, of course, there's damage like working out where you do some damage to your muscles, but then they build back. And then there's damage, you know, like breaking a leg where, you know, or a disease that that's uh, tearing your body down to the point where you can't recover unless something changes. And the same activity could for one person could be a different kind of harmful for another. Exactly. 
Yeah. And, and so there are people that, like there are couples that I see where I might consider one person's behavior to be pretty toxic. But for whatever reason, the other person is just super resilient or they just handle it really well. Maybe they're very mature and just and they don't take it personally and they're able to work through that in a way where, you know, they just it's almost like a force field. And yeah, they're still open with their partner and that kind of thing. And so I guess I guess what we need to measure is how toxic is the behavior compared with how resilient is the person on the other end of it. And at some point, some behavior gets so toxic, no one would do well in that right. in that relationship. And and there are also people who are so resilient that you know, I just don't know if there's short of, you know, physically just beating them up, uh, if there's anything that they couldn't work their way through. Um, so, but usually most people are falling somewhere in between, you know, and I guess what I look at is the results, you know, is somebody struggling to the point where they're losing or gaining weight, they're losing or, or, or they're sleeping too much or not enough. They're, they're showing the signs of depression or anxiety or something like that. And then, and then one of two things needs to happen or both resilience needs to increase or the level of the level of contention or whatever it is needs to decrease. Right. Either the exposure to, or the partner. Right. And if they can't move, if, if, you know, if there's no movement to be made, yeah, that's a relationship that's just going to end, you know, so flexibility is life. Rigidity is death. So, so I wanted to, to, um, sort of explore this mindfulness subject and uh-huh. I, I'm relating to a, a lot of the things you've said about it. Um, we have, well, as you probably know, both Kathy and I have been divorced twice. Mm-hmm. But, but going back even further into my childhood and on into adulthood, um, I mean, I, I have a Juris doctorate degree and a postdoc. Um, I, and I've achieved a number of things in my life, but I've discovered, or I discovered uh, in my 40s, that most of what I had achieved, I had achieved through fear and anxiety. And that it was sheer terror about failing an exam or something like that. And, and Fast forward to when I was going through my second divorce, uh, I had just spent a very turbulent summer with my second wife. Uh, both of our, we had two sons that were getting in trouble together uh, all the time. And, and uh, anyway, within a couple month period of time, I got custody of my son back, which I was glad of, but it was still a, a stressful event. Yeah, I can imagine. And then, I, I found out that I had failed the Texas bar exam by one point, and uh, I got laid off from my corporate job in Houston. <clears throat> and then uh, within two months of that, left my wife and my car was dying in the, you know, to boot. So mm-hmm. I moved back to Utah. I had some serious issues to deal with with my son. And uh, that's that's a whole other story. But to, to put it mildly, you know, on the Holmes-Rahe stress index, I've never tried to add it up, but my number would have been enough to crash a computer. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember this one one day, uh, my son just came and announced to me, he was 18 by this time, I, I'm going to move out of state. Mm-hmm. And I tried to talk him out of it, but there was no talking him out of it. And I found myself at one, one o'clock in the morning, the next morning, sitting in my office, staring at my computer sort of blankly. And I, I was so full of anxiety and stress that I literally couldn't function. And I remember thinking, you know, when I sort of came to myself, okay, this is not, not normal. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't the way I'm supposed to function. It's not the way I'm used to functioning. Um, but I, I think I had gotten to a point where the thought of being in fear and anxiety was so distasteful to me that I didn't care if I was homeless. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, I did a couple of things. One, as I started, uh, I had a client who was also a mid-single, like I was at the time, who had been after me to, to hike with him after work. So I took him up on that finally. And then I also uh, went and got some help. And I just got assigned the person that was in the clinic, that was in that clinic. I didn't make any selection, but I walked into the room and I thought, oh my, this is never going to (laughs) work. She looked like she was about 15. Um, (laughs) It turned out she was 28, still a lot younger than me. I mean, probably just two or three years older than my oldest son. And, but, uh, I decided to to try to be open minded and and give her a try, and I felt somewhat better at the end of that session. So I kept going back to her for a year and a half. Um, but the very first thing she talked to me about was mindfulness. Uh, she first taught me about different strategies, like okay, feel the texture of five things in the room, you know. Um, mm-hmm look at five things in the room that are visually different and notice all their properties and whatever, kind of to try to ground me in the moment. And, uh, and after that, she taught me meditation and it took me a while to, to figure that out. Um, I'm pretty good at meditating now, but it, it didn't come easy at the beginning. Yeah. Anyway, if you could speak to some of that, like, um, I think a lot of mid-singles probably have issues like I had with anxiety, depression, you know. Maybe even overthinking. I know Jeff mm-hmm. told me that quite often she'd say, okay, you are so in your head. Let's kind of get you out of your head a little bit. Right. But I used my intellect as a defense mechanism and I would analyze things to death to try to protect myself from them, which is probably true. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, it was interesting. I saw a comment recently on a divorce uh, page, related page on uh, Facebook, and 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 you could tell that the person was suffering. You know that they are just suffering, and it had to do with issues around divorce and and the church and culture and all that kind of stuff. Are they fairly and, newly recent divorced? Do you know? I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I don't. I we don't call know. that period the ache. Yeah, the ache. And I, I have a this was a guy, and I think that he'd probably been divorced for a while, but um but anyway, he he reflects like what I've seen a lot. 
And, you know, it reminded me of the scripture, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The key is you got to know it first. You know, it won't just set you free because it's in a book on your desk. You know, it's like it's kind of got to get into you. And I just think when I look at the suffering of people, um, what I've noticed is there's so much misunderstanding about two things. Um, one is the gospel, you know, um, what is the atonement for, you know, what is our relationship with Christ meant to be like, what, what is our relationship with each other meant to be like, what's the difference between now and this celestial world and then in that celestial world, you know, what, what are the differences? And, and I think people are so bound into this celestial existence and the, and the myopia as, you know, president Nelson called it being myopic about it. Oh, it's just going to be like this, but maybe better. And it's just like, I don't know that it'll be anything like this in yeah. all the ways that matter. Um, and so we have these very restricted views of what reality has to be like. And, and because we see through that glass darkly, um, it causes us suffering when in reality, truth isn't, we're not grasping the truth and, and about the gospel. And then there's the truth about who are we and how does my mind and my heart work? And, and let me tell you, there are so many misconceptions about, you know, who we are. And, and I'm gathering this from, you know, kind of a practical Buddhist perspective. But I think the best in Buddhism and Islam and everything is the best in the gospel. You know, and if there's anything uh, that's not true, that's been folded in over time. But um, but I, you could say that about our doctrine, too, that there's a lot of misguided notions about what yeah. we teach. Of those we like to look freedom. for the universal to, to find where there's harmony rather than exactly the where they're different. Right. And so I teach these eight skills, but really I could find you 20 or 30 scriptures on each skill, you know, and mm -hmm. how Christ taught that or the prophets have taught that throughout the history of this world. And Anyway, and so those two things, I misunderstand God and my relationship with him, and I misunderstand myself and how I function. And I just say to myself, if only we could learn those things, um, and really it gets down to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, my heart, my mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself, which really love thyself, you know, as thyself, you know, as you thy know. true self. <laughs> That's the yeah. key. Yeah. You know, I love myself. Yeah, but are, do you even know who you're talking about when you say that? And so I love kind of the Buddhist backdoor way of describing us that, you know, that's skill number one to help us understand, you know, who we really are, you know, and um, and I think it meshes well with the gospel. You know, I think that's what the gospel defined in that relationship with God. It, it is. It, and really what it's talking about is our true self, which is a child of God, which is like uh a divine being you know like uh the the true us is perfect and that when i think of the scriptures that talk about become as a little child i think that's what they're talking about come back to your true self in other words learn from the lessons of life without becoming bitter well so you it's know? almost like not figuring ourselves out but remembering who we are remembering who we are while adding the lessons of who we became through the hardships. 
Yeah, I like and that. And it's almost like both. Like, don't let it squeeze the real you out of you. Let it add add some some depth and meaning to who you were when you were childlike. So now you're stay childlike. And, and if you think of Christ as the perfect example, he's the most mature and able to and resilient and able to withstand anything on our behalf, but he's also childlike and sweet natured and good. Yeah. And he's the only one who was able to maintain the one while he added the other. You know, I, I think about this idea of becoming as a little child. And I think you think about a three or four year old and if they, if you scold them, you know, you, 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 that was naughty or whatever, they'll come to you and reach up and want to be held. Right. They want to be loved. They want to be reassured, you know, yes. whatever. Do we adults do that? You know, if we have words with somebody, we don't usually go looking for a hug right away. Well, and part of that is because we've been beaten over the head for being right. honest about what we're struggling with. You know, both by parents, spouses, children, I mean, you know, neighbors, friends. Um, yeah. And so after a while, you get like, ooh, I don't want to. You build the wall. I don't want to be real. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to let you know that I'm struggling somehow, you know, because you're going to punish me for that. And, and of course, all of us who've been divorced have probably experienced that to one degree or another. And what's sad is we've probably contributed to that to one degree or another. In retrospect, I know I did. Right, right. I, you know, I've been married twice too, and and I think I look I look back on those experiences, and I say to myself, you know, even if I thought the behavior was hurtful in some way, I responded inappropriately. You know, or I guess a better way would be inconsistently with who I truly am. Right. You know, and I would like to think now, in all of those circumstances, I'm much more resilient than I was in those circumstances at the time, even though to give myself some credit, I think I was doing the best I could at the time, but I think sometimes we have to go through those hard times to learn how to handle those hard times. Um, and I, I, I once said that to my first spouse, I, she and I were having a conversation, a very tearful, you know, beautiful conversation about, we're sorry, you know, that we really wish that we had done better. Yeah. And she apologized. And I said, you know, um, I think if we could go back and and live in that relationship with what we know now, we would make it work. The problem was that we wouldn't have learned what we learned now had we not gone apart. Right. You know, that we needed to get out of that toxic situation in order to heal and learn what we could learn from what we went through. And once that happened. It may be that, you know, we're not meant to go revisit any of it. And and that's fine. And uh, and I think that's true of all of us. We need to look at our adversity as sort of like life lesson opportunities rather than it's all got to work out perfectly by our definition. So, right. well, and I know we feel we're better partners for each other and we couldn't have done it earlier in life, like without right. the experiences we went through. And. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've even heard some people who chose to stay married and divorce the toxicity, divorce the ener negative energy. And right. some people have made that work too. Mm -hmm. But either way, there's this transition, this decision to change. Yeah. 
So yeah, you and that's that that flexibility I was talking about before is I either need to become resilient enough for whatever my partner brings that's hurtful, or I need to get away from the hurtful partner, you know, and that's really what it comes right down to. And obviously for many of us, it may be most of us, you know, the level of hurt was so bad. We made a choice that for me to survive emotionally, spiritually, maybe even physically um, and not die young or, you know, um, die from an addiction or something that I do to try to get out of my pain, I need to let this go, you know, and that's a hard decision to make. I get it. Um, um, but it can be, if, if we're not bitter, we learn the lesson. If, if we, become bitter i think we get stuck in only the pain of it and then that ruins future relationships if we can remain soft and childlike i think that actually blesses future relationships when you're talking about letting go there a minute ago were you talking about letting go of the pain or letting go of a relationship well either one we we either need to heal in the relationship or if we can't do that there may come a time when we can only heal outside of it and what in either case, there's something to be that we need to let go, you know, and every time it'll be something inside of us. But sometimes I think it'll be letting go of the situation that keeps damaging us. Is letting go one of your eight skills? Um, I, I would say all of them have a little bit of let go in them. Um, so the way I word them now is. Uh, I just use three words just because it keeps it simple. Um, and so, and you know, what's funny is I, I, I say that <laughs> I'm almost, and I'm, I'm wondering, can I even remember the three words? But uh, even if I can't, I, I can tell you basically the idea behind all of them, but um, yeah, they all have a certain amount of let go in them. Um, and, and the question is, what do I let go of? You know, and I'll give you one example. It, and I think this is an example of how not knowing the truth keeps you enslaved. And that's the difference between forgiveness and trust. Um, I see so many suffering because they have this misguided notion that to forgive means to trust. And, we, and it's so critical that we separate out those two concepts because they're very different. You know, forgiveness. Well, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, I might need to forgive somebody that, heaven forbid, molested my child, but I'm not going to let that person babysit again. You know exactly, and that's the difference. You know that doesn't mean I have to be subject to abuse or neglect or, you know, keep being a doormat for somebody that's taking advantage of me. You know, at some point, I'm allowed to say that's not okay, and I don't trust you enough, whether it's to stay in this relationship or to let you babysit my child or whatever that may be, but I still can forgive you. Right. And for me, you know, we think of forgiveness as something between us and the person who hurt us. When in reality, it's a lot more between us and us or us and Jesus. Right. You know, in other words, I'm going to, Jesus, I'm going to hand you all the pain, bitterness, resentment, you know, whatever, not like this has to happen in a day. But over time, I'm going to gradually just unload this and let you, I mean, basically he's already paid for it, but let him carry that burden and let me move on with my life free from that 
from the negative uh, impact of that abuse or neglect or whatever it was. Um, and I can do that whether my whether I talk to my the person who hurt me or not, whether I stay they stay in my life or not, uh, whether they apologize or not. Yeah. In other words, it takes it gives me all the freedom and takes any power from them to control my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, you can literally forgive people that you will never speak to again in this life. You yeah. know, it's like, I'll talk to you on the other side when all of us have been cleansed from all this bitterness and anger and resentment, you know, then I'll, maybe I'll feel safe in the conversation at that point. In the meantime, um, I, you know, I may have no contact with you, but I have absolutely no animosity toward you. And I actually hope that you have an amazing life. I right. really do. I wish you, I truly wish you all the best. And it's not just a throwaway phrase. <laughs> you know, that I'm saying just so that I seem like a nice person. This is genuine. You know, you, I want to get to the point where I can do that with everyone who's ever hurt me. Um, I've always felt that that's a generally good indication that you've gotten to a pretty good place in forgiveness. And I, I think sometimes forgiveness, it's not like a place of arrival, but more of a maintenance phase, like, because you can have like the trigger come back up and then you have to put the rock back down again. Right. Am I letting it stick inside me? Yeah. Or, or am I letting how other people treat me move through me and out of me? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so take it as instructive. And that's actually one of the skills. Some of the skills speak more to some of these issues than others, but they all are really intertwined. And if you want, I can kind of go through some of them. To that's get what I was going to ask you. Yeah. I would love to um, so um, the first one I call see the light. And that's about really seeing who you are, you know, really. And so when Paul talks about see, then we will see as we are seen. Right. Meaning how God sees us. Right. And I think when we do that, we're going to be so much more loving toward ourselves and others, including people who hurt us. We'll see why they hurt us. We'll see all that had been done wrong to them. We'll, we'll see that they did the best they could with what they knew at the time. And, um, and so to see the light is about who are we really? I think a lot of times life piles a lot of stuff on top of us or tells us who we are. And, um, and I think this is taking back our own sense of identity and saying, you know what? I may do make some mistakes here and there. I, I may not rise up to my potential a lot of the time. I may have hurt some people in my past, but that's not who I am. I'm going to keep my eye on who I really am and keep directing my attention back every time I'm tempted to think I'm somebody who I'm not. And, and when we get down to it, we're not our jobs, we're not our family relationships, we're not um, our past, for sure, we're not our future. Really, who we are is, oh, I think of it the way it's described in mindfulness would be, it's almost like I am the canvas and life paints on me. Like I am the, I allow life to happen through me you know so the closest thing that i would think of in scripture would be nephi saying make me an instrument in thy hands meaning let god do the miracle through you rather than you trying to fix everything and make everything okay and 
Because when we become perfectionistic and we feel like we have to drive that, one of two things happens. We either become super rigid and controlling or we give up and become the victim and, you know, get, and, and let it all go, you know, and we, letting go is important, but not everything, you know, you know there are things put, worth holding on to. To put that in sort of a different context, I remember the first year of my mission being sort of an anxious personality. I wanted to do everything right and make sure that I answered all the questions right. And I would take my anxiety into discussions with me. And my first year I had, I don't know, three baptisms. And then my second year, I had sort of given up and like, okay, God, if you want yeah, to go baptize, bring them to me. <laughs> and my second year I have like 12. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Because Here's one thing, you know, how President Nelson has talked to us about following the spirit. Right. Well, how can you follow the spirit if you're so determined to control everything? You're trying to put it in a box. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, it's kind of like saying, hey, um, hey, Lord, tell me what to do as long as it's not those three things. You know, right. as long as it's one of these two things, I'm cool with it. But but what if the Lord wants to say, <coughs> hey, you see that thing you put among the three? That's actually what I want you to do. That sounds crazy to you right now from your limited point of view, but that's where I want you to go with it. And your life will be better if you would choose that path. And so what I've learned to, when I ask God for direction, not to give him choices, but to almost like, I mean, you can, you can say, this is the course I want to follow. Um, and then if the spirit bears witness that that's a good course, go with it. But if the spirit bears witness that that's not a good course, at that point, I get kind of open. Right. You know, can you inspire me with another idea? Because I'm coming up blank, you know, with what would be a better option. And sometimes I just let him guide my life. I think part of the problem, you know, with my history with relationships and stuff is I've been rigid about who I chose and I've been rigid about how to show up. I have to show up this way and no other way. And it's like, mm, could you be open to maybe a different way that might work better in this relationship? And that includes each of your children too. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe showing up that way with one child isn't going to work, you know, where as it works really well with another. But, um, and so that. Yeah, I like to show up as my best self. I prefer that. Uh, right. But like in our interview with uh, Dr. Greg Bear we talked about showing up authentically, even when we're having a bad day and being able to say to our date or our child, you know, today's not my best day. And yeah, yeah. connect us like in, in really heartwarming ways um, when we're willing to do that. Right. What I would say is that's your true self describing your false self being in control right now. Right. <laughs> in other words, Always let your true self have a voice, even when you know you're showing up um, in a way that's not. See, when I think of authentic from the perspective of mindfulness, I'm thinking connected to my true self and expressing that. I think what he's talking about is authenticity as being real about wherever you're at, you know, yeah, right. and in a way, what I would say is be real about your not being real. You know, uh, <laughs> in other words, I'm not like, I'm not right showing now. up as my highest self right now. Yeah, and I'm I realize really, that's who I am. 
yeah, I have just had a really rough week. I've been, and that's not an excuse to, to be unkind in any way. I'm just, I may seem a little distracted. You know, I may seem a little bit overwhelmed sometimes. And I just want you to know that that's about things going on that have nothing to do with you. And I'm going to just be as present as I can be. Yeah. I'm going to do the best I can right now in this human condition. Yeah. But see, all of that to me is coming from the voice of authentic self, you know, even though it's describing an inauthentic, you know. Uh, I appreciate that perspective. (laughs) Yeah. I want you to Um, know very honestly that I'm a big phony. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I got my, you know, resting jerk face on and I'm, you know, yeah, I think it's just being the thing about our true self and, and, you know, we could talk for hours just about this one skill is the thing about our true self is it's very aware, he or she is very aware of reality as it is and very truthful and open, although very compassionate of self and others. So look, always looks for the way to describe it that is true, but also gentle, you know, um, not looking to beat people's beat truth over people's head. Um, and so it really, it is that childlike nature, you know, as opposed to the childish, which is the inauthentic, you know? And I remember there was a talk back in the seventies. I'm actually old enough. I mean, I was a kid, but, um, and there was a member of the 70, Derek Cuthbert, that gave a talk called, remember him. um, childish and, or, um, childlike and childish or something like or learning to be childlike but it talked about being five qualities of of being childish and immature and five qualities of being childlike and humble and open to God's influence and I I think it's important we differentiate that because I think our true self is the childlike person we're trying to come back to like the prodigal coming back home basically remembering let me me ask you something about what you said a minute ago about feeling like it it sort of got in the way that you were pretty rigid about how you showed up and all of that um what experiences taught you that and uh and how do you think it makes a difference to do that differently um i'll give you two examples and i'll use um attachment theory Okay, so secure attachment, what I love about it is it's very balanced and it's comfortable. There's a certain resilience to it. Resilience literally means to be able to bounce back. So there's a flexibility. Flexibility is a big word in in mindfulness. Um, And so I am at peace with you taking space and doing things on your own. But I also like to have closeness and do things together. Um, I think the two things I did that I've done in relationships and became rigid about is, um, if someone runs from me, I have to chase them. Mm. And if someone chases me, I have to run. So you create a pursuer distance or dynamic. Exact. Well, and yeah, or I just fall into it and without, right. right. Yeah. And, and then those patterns become rigid you know, but I'm part of that dance. Mm. So you're not being intentional. You're reacting. I'm reacting. Yeah. And so I guess the bigger issue is when do we stop reacting and start 
being proactive in the way we show up, you know? And so, so there were times in, in my relationships where I was too rigid. I was too, Hey, you got to do it. That Like I, I was more controlling than I, I feel comfortable with now for sure. But there were other times when I was way too pushover and, and allowed myself to be walked all over too, where I needed to stand up and just say, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to do that. You know? Um, and quite honestly, I think I was that way during the choosing process too, you know, and everybody has their, this, this isn't, doesn't mean that the people I wound up with were bad people. They just, they had styles that I wasn't, uh, I wasn't willing to acknowledge and respond to appropriately. Basically let them, let them be over here, but I'm going to stay here. Let them come over here but I'm staying here, not rigid, but just kind of like a metronome, just tick, tock, tick, you know, I'm balance. just going to, yeah, in a balance, I'll be both humble and confident, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, both um, powerful and strong, but also gentle and kind, you know, but I'm not going to become so confident that I'm arrogant, but I'm not going to become so humble that I'm ashamed. Yeah. And and that, that's actually uh, skill number seven. I call it walk the path. Um, and that's about maintaining balance. You know, wherever life wants to take you, just be willing to just come back to balance. Often. I love that. And this year, that's my word for the whole year. Oh, balance? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's such a powerful thing. <laughs> yeah, know? it actually, it comes from actually a technique we call working the dialectic dialectic is a two-sided coin and uh working the dialectic means whenever i drift to one extreme i need to almost advocate for the other side you know like so if i'm being really upset with somebody i need to advocate for being gentle and kind and you know guide myself back at least in that direction but if i'm being kind of a pushover and too kind and indulging people and you know being enabling them i need to come back to setting boundaries you know saying that's not okay you know that i'm not willing to do that you know in this relationship um and so it, it's really beautiful because if you think about balance it's a constant movement we think of it as rigid but anything rigid is going to topple over eventually, right. you know, but, but if you're like a palm tree, you stay upright by kind of going with the wind. Um, there are I love what you're saying about advocating the opposite of any extreme. Um, and right. I don't know if you'll remember this. I know you reviewed intentional courtship and there's a part in there where I said, we tend to attract opposite extremes when we're extreme. Right. So advocating for the opposite and with gaining balance helps us attract a more healthy person in that degree. Yes. And then we were more healthy. Then light cleaveth unto light and virtue loveth virtue and all that stuff. Yes. Well, and so when I was more leaning toward being more controlling, I what who did I attract? I tended to attract women who were almost too um you know kind of push over kind of you know whatever you say whatever you want to do it, you know and and then when i became too push over myself i attract you know women who want to control and be more dominating and i think that when you think of secure attachment um it's balance and if i'm balanced who am i going to attract you know we're, we're all going to attract men and women who are more balanced 
And so, you know, my hope is that I've learned from those experiences and found the balance. I, I think the scary part about, you know, starting to date again after a divorce is can I maintain the balance even in the presence of someone who's maybe pushing your buttons um, and pushing, pushing me one way or the other. And, and I think what I've gotten good at is if they push me too far one way or the other, that's not my person. And that's okay. And, um, and I don't even have to analyze that, even though I'm a therapist, I'm not even tempted to try to figure that out anymore. So it's more you just, just notice if you're out of balance and it's hard to maintain that with that person, they're not your person. Is that yeah, saying? it's like they keep wanting me to go here with them. And at this point in my life, I'm not rigid about it. I just, I, I just don't want to go. <laughs> I'm, I guess I'm rigid in my flexibility. I just, I want to. Can we, I just want to, I want another palm tree. Can we just be palm trees together and just sway together? You oh, know, yeah. you know and there's a reason there are no uh, oak trees on the beach. You know, they don't do well in hurricanes. They, they get torn apart. And, but that doesn't mean oak trees are bad, you know? And, and so good, you know, be an oak tree. It's just like my, you know, my girl's a palm tree. I, I, I gotta, I'm going to go look for one of those. So <laughs> Um, okay, awesome. Now, attachment theory, as I understand it, well, does it grow out of like infant attachment theory, John Bowlby and that whole? Um, uh -huh. and, and so if someone was an insecurely attached or, you know, had an attachment disorder as a child, can they overcome that as an adult with intentional effort? Yeah, I think so. In most cases, there are some people um, you know, things we call borderline and narcissism and things like that are sort of deeply entrenched things, but I don't think that's the vast majority of people. Um, I mean, we're all on that spectrum to one degree or another. Um, some of us because of trauma in our past or, um, you know, could it be related to our personalities? I just don't think that the true selves inside of us are that way. I just don't think they're rigid like that or stuck in one extreme or the other you know i i think our true selves are balanced you know but we get thrown off and th through life you know um but yeah it, it flows from that idea that in childhood you know we're learning how to strike that balance and some just do do it better than others or for whatever whether that's because their life is too hard or they're not resilient enough you know, the combination of those things. So if I'm in a super loving home, that can really help me. But that's no guarantee because we know there are loving homes with kids who are who turn out to be really rigid and angry and bitter. And, you know, and then there are homes that are really rough and 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 yet kids come out of those families and are really gentle and kind and but also confident and able to, you know, to create an amazing life and have really balanced relationships. So um, you know, um, there's there's something before I get off the attachment idea, as I recall, and it's been a while since I've read any of that literature, but the there was this idea that the primary attachment figure for a child uh, was usually the mother, but whoever it was, that person would act as a secure base of operations so the child could roam around and explore and do things and then come back and check in once in a while with mm -hmm. their their mom or whoever and and the insecurely attached child was really clingy was like always on mom's leg or whatever 
And it, it's, you know, it's interesting because it, intuitively we might think the other way. Well, the one that really loves his mom is the one who's always wanting to be on her hip, you know. And, and as I recall, the literature actually said the opposite, that the mm -hmm. child that felt more free to roam was more secure and understood that mom was going to be there. She wasn't going to leave and not tell him or whatever. Yeah, I think I think insecure attachment, you know, in childhood can manifest as one of two extremes. Either I don't care about you, mom, I'm going my own way when I'm three and I don't even like I you can come in the room and I don't even light up when right. you do kind of the I don't care itis side um, or the clingy like love me, love me, love me. But think about what what are those two, you know, avoidance dreams. and anxious attachment. Yeah. yeah. And so what are we learning early on? Now, I will say, I'll give you like research on people who have sort of a toxic narcissism as adults. Um, if you're parenting a child, these are two things that are associated with that. One would be um, only recognizing the child when they perform somehow. Meaning you just being you is not enough to get your parents' attention. You have to get an award. You have to win the championship. You have to do something worth noting. And so do you see the narcissism in that? It's almost right. kind of like, I have to show that I'm good. So I have to, my Facebook, you know, and Instagram uh, posts have to show what an amazing life I have. Um, and, and the reason being is if I'm just average and normal, I'm not, I, I've learned that I'm not worthy of being loved for just that, okay? The other extreme is neglecting them all the rest of the time. Meaning, so it's the two, the two extremes of, I love you when you're awesome and when you're just average or you're struggling, I don't even know you, you know? And so you'll have parents who are so, and it might be because they're so busy. It's not because they're trying to reject their child. They just might be super busy or they put other priorities first. And so if they're sort of like a distant parent and the child struggles and can't come circle back, like you said, Jeff, to get that reassurance and comfort, um, yeah, they'll, they'll get to where they're going to be searching for it, you know, elsewhere and in ways that are like bigger and bigger and more uh, showy, you know, um, but neither one is authentic. Yeah. Well, that's so helpful. I actually would love to get back to the list because I think I know see the light number one and walk the path number seven. Yeah. I would love so, to hear the other six. <laughs> so number two, um, be here now, which, you know, obviously that's about being present in the moment, but it's bigger than that. Really, really that one is about focusing on what you can control and letting go of what you can't control. Hmm. Okay, and, so the, uh, yeah. the prayer, the serenity prayer, that's a great quote for this one. Um, and, and that include when it, when we're talking about time, um, I really don't have control over the past. Um, and, and we gotta be careful with that because listen, happy memories. There's two things that I think are very important about the past, but the question I always ask myself is, do they benefit me in the here and now? So one is happy memories and lessons learned, which may not be as pleasant, but they can benefit me in the here and now. But if it's just me going over all the horrible things that have happened in my life, that's not helping me in the now. 
and that would be something that I want to let go of. Um, and then the future, I can, it's good to have some plans to have sort of a structure on how I'd like my, um, how I'd like my future to go. But in the end, we can't control that perfectly. It's going to depend on other people and their agency. It's going to depend on factors that I can't foresee from my limited perspective. So really the only moment I can control really well. And if you go back to last conference, okay, President Nelson, um, really now is the only moment I can do much about, right? Nice. And so do you, so you can even see that Buddhist principle in something taught in general conference, you know, well, and, and repentance is letting go of the past, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's allowing it to be what it was. Yeah. It's like a word for change and, and you're not going to change if you're stuck where you were, you know, change means movement. And, and we come back to that flexibility thing. And so, and then when it comes to people, really, I'm the only one I can, I can really change, you know? And so that, so the three things I tell people to move away from typically is the past, the future and other people, hmm. you know, trying to control that or worrying about that or that kind of thing. Well, and, and then, then any the thoughts you have about those things, um, something I really learned from you just now, and I thought this was so great is happy memories and lessons and maybe good plans that will benefit us no matter what happens yeah, hopes are like dreams. what can support us now. Right. Yeah. Yes. Love hopes that. and dreams are great. As long as we don't hold on to them rigidly and say, it has to be that way. It has to be the fairy tale ending. It has, you know, listen, the, here's the beautiful promise of the gospel. We will all have a fairy tale ending compared to this life. Even people in the lowest of kingdoms will have a fairy tale ending compared to what we go through here, you know, but if we're, if we prove faithful, the ultimate fairy tale ending is coming and people will say, yeah, but you know, um, this isn't working out or I got divorced or I, you know, my child died young or my, you know, I lost my business or and it's just like all of that stuff is irrelevant when it comes to that life, you know, now the, then they'll say, well, what about this life? You know? Well, hey, if I focus on me right now, just what can I do right now, you know, and we need to be open to the answer, you know, for example, when Jeff's sitting at that computer with a blank expression and can't literally cannot function is trying to like gut out some more uh, work product going to be what he needs to do right now. I, I don't, I don't know that that's that's the time for that. That's in a way that's almost like your body and your soul telling you, yeah, you're not going to be putting out work product right now. Better okay. go to the gym and sweat, you know, pump yeah, some Yeah, sweat it out, take a walk, just, you know, or get grounded in the hair now, like your therapist thought, you, you know, pay attention to textures, colors, hues, sounds, you know, kind of get into your here and now. And yeah, at least enough to where that can decompress you. Now go back and look at your computer screen, whether that's five minutes later or five hours later. And it's like, you know what? I feel like I can do something now. Yeah. Sometimes our bodies are really demanding. And if we don't listen, then we're kind of going against ourselves. Right. Yeah. And, we, and we'll either listen to them now or we'll listen to them later when they're falling apart. Yep. <laughs> and we're having heart attacks and, and, yeah. and, you know, diseases that we shouldn't have. And yeah, it's just crazy.
Well, and I'll just say, I, I relate our thought model, our FCBO thought model to this number two a lot because uh, we talk about how stories can either serve us or take away from our progression. They can keep right. stuck or they can help us move forward depending on the stories we choose. And we often think the stories we tell, the thoughts we think are just facts and they're not. They're like a lot of them are choices we're making and sometimes mm -hmm. they're not intentional choices. We're just accepting the thoughts that come rather than choosing, like you said, to, to focus on happy memories and lessons we've learned or plans right. that we can make that can benefit us rather than just falling into this pattern of negative thinking mm -hmm. that keeps us not in the here and now or being able right. to express. Yeah, I can, I can have a plan for, and a dream for my future, but still allow God to kind of do some editing, you know, and, and not presume I have to be rigid about every detail. And, you know, I, I got to remind myself that we're talking, the audience we're talking to, and just let you know that staying yourself is really attractive with number one, staying balanced is super attractive. It, it's also really good at clearing our minds and helping us judge well. But when it comes to number two, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of the rigidity that can get in our way. I'm meant to marry this person and I have to marry them. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have done. And they have no choice in the matter. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the answer to that question. If you really feel like you have to marry this person, if you're going to be an oak tree on the beach, maybe you're right. Maybe you do, but it's not necessarily for the reason you presume. <laughs> it's not to be like an eternal happy family and you know all that maybe it's because they are your next lesson <laughs> you know and if you're determined to have the learn the lesson that way mm -hmm. you know what go ahead and marry him you know, you know I mean? jeff and i've both <laughs> been married twice before each other yeah. and it, after my second marriage ended, I remember telling God, I don't want another lesson. I want a real marriage this time. And if you, as I, as I search, as I intentionally search, if it's not going to be awesome, tell me no. And he told me no a lot. Oh and yeah. I really appreciated that. I had made that clarification this time, not just bring someone into my life and help me learn and grow, but like, you know, just say no, if it's not going to yes. be work out the way you know i would really like to learn this time through success right. yeah we need to learn to let go a lot faster yeah you know um if if we would let go a lot faster we would stop holding on to the wrong things and the yeah. wrong people and it didn't make it easy but it did help to know that that was right. my intention that you know i was willing to like be like you said flexible and allow him to edit yeah and then almost presume, and, and this really takes us to number three, which is let it be. Let it be, you know, let reality be what it is without trying to micromanage it. You know, if someone isn't feeling it, let, let it be, you know, just let, them, <laughs> See, I, I mean, that was my, between two people, right. That was you my know? first marriage. I couldn't let it be, you know, right. That was my big lesson is she doesn't love me. What can I do to make her love me? What can I do? Right. To, and there's nothing you can do. Well, and I mean, as long as you're fighting reality, you can waste decades of your life trying to change something. Not, can't be changed. Not accepting right. what it is. And 
this is where we talk about radical acceptance a lot because when we're radically accepting Ooh. what is, we can make that's, better choices. That's the principle behind number three. Yeah. So that's letting what I be thought. is another name for radical acceptance. Yeah. And if you think about it, if I'm if I'm trying to get someone to love me, here let's just take one, two, and three. I'm not being my my true self because my true self doesn't force anything. My true self feels lovable, you know. And so, if someone doesn't recognize that, I I feel no need to to force that. <laughs> Second, I I'm only focusing on being myself in the here and now. You know, whether you love me or not, that's your decision. You know, and I'll let you make that decision. I feel no need to compel you to control you because you're another person. So past, future, other people. Yeah, I'm not going to mess with it. And then three, clearly, if I'm accepting reality as it is, that includes accepting people's perspective. That doesn't mean I have to adopt it as my own, by the way. It doesn't mean I have to agree with everyone on everything. Obviously, you can even yeah. not like it at all. But really, that like is what it is. Right. And I can change it to the degree that I can just associate with people who don't espouse that particular point of view. That doesn't mean I have to be rude to people or contentious, you know, but I can just say, certainly, I don't want to invite into my life in a marital situation, someone who is like pulling teeth to get them to love me. And so, so let's just take those first three. When you find someone that's a good match for you, you will be able to be your true authentic self in their presence without resist them resisting that. Two, you will, it will be very easy to stay focused on the here and now and then to enjoy the experience. Okay. Without any need to try to force them or get them to do anything. They'll just love you naturally. And three, um, you'll just re let reality be what it is. You don't have to. It, it will come very naturally and easy. And so if you're finding resistance on any of those three, ah, that's probably not your person. Now, I'm not saying you give up on people necessarily just because you're, you know, you notice that it's a struggle. And, and the reason for that is people change, you know, people heal, people grow, people, you know, and I do like the idea that, you know, they hold that position or that perspective now, but what if they were loved well? What if they were, and that doesn't mean we're trying to fix anybody, but what if they were just treated with kindness and respect for a while, and then it may be the person that I didn't feel comfortable dating or marrying, you know, six months ago, I saw them again, and they're just, they just had their epiphany, you know, they've had their moment where they really had a breakthrough, and it's just like, okay, well, you know, hey, I'd like to, let's go to lunch, you know, I'd really like to talk to you and see what you've been up to lately. Yeah, I, I don't have to give up on people. It just may, the timing may not be right. Mm -hmm. That's why I just focus on myself in the here and now. That's what's important. So yeah, that's, that's great. I am, I think we could go on and on about those three, but I definitely want to learn more. So okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll get through the, so let's go to four and I call that hold it lightly. Hold it lightly. Yeah. And this has to do with our own internal experiences and our behavior. So thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Um, so one of the things that gets us into trouble is that we either will think a thought, I'm just going to use a thought as an example, and we'll either ignore it, throw it away before even considering it. Oh, that's not a good thought. Or we'll, we'll hang on to it super tightly and like, that's how it has to be. And, 
so you can almost feel number seven and number four that either rigid or like chaotic and the idea be behind hold it gently is really the longer version is hold your thoughts gently or your feelings or your behaviors. Um, but basically be willing to um, doubt yourself in a healthy way. Mm. Meaning, this is where the thought model comes in, actually. Yeah. Don't yeah. take yourself too seriously. Um, be willing to. And what I help clients do is basically say, is there some something beneficial to the thought even if the, it's the thought that i hate myself um so just to give an example if i say i hate myself i want to do better i know that i could do better um i really struggle with my weaknesses you know um i feel really sad for the ways that i've hurt other people okay so those are four sentences that are not i hate myself they're actually but they might flow from the statement i hate myself but they're actually useful they could actually teach me about how to improve my life and be a better person. But then there's the part about, I am a horrible person. There's no hope for me to change. You know, like I don't deserve any love, you know? So these are toxic and that come from that same statement. I hate myself that we need to let go of. Okay. Oh, and so, so you're saying transition, maybe a thought that may, might not be helpful to thoughts that could be helpful if you shift them to something yep. more beneficial. Right. Finding the meaning in it that's useful and finding the meaning in it that's not useful mm -hmm. and holding on to the useful, letting go of the not useful. And here's the key is um, know that uh, every thought or feeling has something in it that could really bless your life, but it also has something in it that could really sabotage you. Like, I like myself. Well, that could turn into arrogance, you know, but I like myself could just be self-esteem and confidence. So it's learning to say, how can I take from that statement that which blesses me and let go of what doesn't? Mm -hmm. And so because the two big mistakes we make is we reject it and get rid of all the learning that it could provide or we embrace it. And, and hang on to all the BS that it provides. <laughs> and so <laughs> what if I could have the best of both worlds and I hang on to the good stuff and let go of the not so good stuff? And that's being very intentional about the thoughts you choose. Right, and so not letting that river of thoughts just dominate us. It's almost like us saying, no, 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 no. This is my river, I am the master of the river. I'm gonna decide what I embrace and what I let go of. Um, I'm not going to walk away from the river, but I'm not gonna swim in it either. Um, I'm just, I'm gonna drink the water that's pure and I'm gonna let all the garbage in the river flow on. Yeah, love that. Uh, yeah. Let, let me give you an example of where I think this gets dicey. <laughs> um, okay. it, it's actually in our book, Intentional Courtship, but there was a, when Kathy and I were first dating, there was this weekend when um, she had her kids. And at that point, I hadn't met them and and we weren't introducing me. Uh, so I only saw her on the, the opposite weekends when she didn't have them. But this one weekend, I happened to be in town. We lived an hour apart. And uh, we had made plans before her kids got up in the morning to go to breakfast. But she found out I was in town on the Friday night and said, come on over. So I went to her house. I met her kids for the first time. 
Uh, we spent five hours together. We talked until 12 or one in the morning. I don't remember the exact time, but it was late. And so as I'm on my way out to go to my brother's, Kathy said, oh, about the breakfast tomorrow, since I'm up this late, I probably shouldn't be getting up early because I have my kids all weekend and so on. Mm-hmm. And so she I'm a can- girl who needs my sleep. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. canceled the breakfast and I'm immediately triggered, like thinking this is rejection. Oh, oh, I hope I didn't overstay my welcome. You know, I'm horribleizing all these spinning thoughts in my head. And, and I personally think as an aside that that comes from rejection in, former, in a former marriage. And, uh-huh. and so in, in any event, um, three-fourths of the way driving, I'm thinking about how to break up with her. And mm-hmm. then it's sort Preemptive of... Preemptive rejection. Yeah, then it sort of, <laughs> it sort of dawned on me. I'm going to reject you first. <laughs> it sort of dawned on me, wait a minute, I just met her kids for the first time. I just spent five hours with her. This isn't a one-hour breakfast. This is a whole evening. And I'm thinking, that's not rejection. That's that's a good trade, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of came to my senses, and I was fine. And the next night, she asked me out. Um, I was still in town, fortunately, after my niece's baptism. Uh, and we went to adult state conference and got dinner, and that was great. And then on Sunday, I'm sitting in church, and I texted her. And I said, um, <laughs> you don't have the kids next weekend. Why don't we plan something? And she said, well, that, that sounds great, but I have a sister flying in who I rarely see, but she lives in New York. So I need to figure out what her schedule is before I make plans. And immediately I'm thinking like uh, uh, the Ronald Miller guy and find me love. Oh yeah. She's washing her hair out of the country. You know, she probably didn't have a sister. I mean, I'm thinking all of these spinning thoughts again, and um can i can i interrupt right there yeah so there is one thing i would like to teach both men and women in this audience okay i call it and this has a lot to do with number seven you know um walk the path find the balance um so if i could go back and we all do this you know right my sister's coming to town i want to make sure that i spend time with her but you're also a priority. And so I'm sure I can make some time for you and our relationship then, you know, something to that effect. Right. I think too often we just say the one side, I'm, I'm going to make my sister a priority and forget to say, but she doesn't have to spend the whole weekend with me, Jeff. Well, you know? and she pretty much did say that. I mean, not right. quite as artfully, but she okay. pretty much said, yeah, I want to, but I just need to figure out what my sister or, or we could say that. Just say, I rarely get to see her. And, and so I'm going to go ahead and spend the weekend with her. But, you know, you're, I'd love to see you, you know, on, you know, at this time after that. Right. And well, I, I see what you're saying is just make sure that we're communicating our interest at the same time we're expressing <laughs> the conflicts. Yeah. And to me, it's just caring. You know, yeah. I care about you even at times when I can't be with you. Even right. at times when I, you know, I need my sleep, you know, even at times when, you know, and that doesn't mean we have to coddle each other. I'm not talking about that. If you get to where you have to constantly prop somebody up, okay, they're being a little, that's, that's too needy. But anyway, go on with your story. Well, so, so basically, by the way, uh, we did go out the next weekend. We got dinner before she went to the airport to pick up her sister. 
and she asked me to go to the airport with her and meet her sister, which I did. So she, does she, really, exist. <laughs> she really does have a sister that yes. is from New York. And all of my horribleizing, you know, was just false. So I happened to see my therapist on the Monday after all this had occurred. And this was before we went out, but I, I kind of came to my senses again, like, wait a minute, this is totally reasonable, you know? And uh, anyway, my, I'll never forget my therapist's words. She said, seems real, feels real. It's very powerful. It's probably lying to you, you know? And, uh, and then we talked a lot about cognitive distortions. And uh -huh. so, so here's the, the point I want to make and get you to respond to. I, there's a word I had been looking for for years, and I had talked to one family science professional that said it was homeostasis. That didn't quite describe what I was looking for, uh -huh. but it's the, it, it is the feeling of, of um, being okay, of being calm, of being peaceful. And the word I ultimately came up with is the Hebrew word shalom, which is translated peace, but, but it means more than that. It also means wholeness and restoration and all mm -hmm. of that. And so to, to me, that, that's a better word. But when I am in a state of shalom, I, am, I can make good decisions. Um, I'm thinking clearly and I'm not afraid. Yes. And I'm not, and I think it's important to learn. Maybe that's what you're calling balance also, but it, um, that's also what I'm calling true self. Right. And even when I'm not feeling that, that shalom inside of me, I like to think of it as aloha as well. That feeling inside of me can still speak for me. Right. Um, uh, yeah. We'll get to that with number eight too, but yeah. But I think it, I think we tend, if we're triggered and we're, off balance or whatever, we tend to have cognitive distortions. We tend to think in a distorted way because we're reacting mm -hmm. to our fears. And so we always tell people, don't make relationship decisions unless you're in shalom, unless you're centered. Yeah. Um, because, you know, like me driving to my brother's house, thinking of how to break up with her, I wasn't thinking straight. I was reacting to my fear. And you know, if the, the really where I think this really gets dicey, like I said, is if I had acted on what I was thinking at that time, probably would have hurt her feelings. She would have responded negatively. And I would have been thinking, oh, see, see, I knew it all yeah, along. Really, I would have created it. Yeah. So you're right. We, when we go back, this is how all these concepts go together. If I go back to my true self, I'm willing to adjust to whatever happens. I'm willing to separate out what is meaningful, what is not so meaningful and what I'm thinking, you know? So let's go to, I'm going to call it the opposite of cognitive distortion is co cognitive clarification. Um, so is that number five? Well, let's just on number four, what I would say really quickly oh, okay. on that is, but this is cognitive clarification graduate school. Um, so rejection, you know, I overstayed my welcome. Let's just take that phrase. I would just say, hey, listen, you know, it may be after all these hard, you know, relationships in my past, I, I can be a little bit needy. I do stick around a little bit longer than I need to. 
you know, maybe I could have left an hour earlier, you know, maybe it would have been okay to set that boundary and just say, hey, I'm going to let you get back to your family and get ready for bed. I'm going to go ahead and take off, you know. Um, okay, so that's something meaningful from, you know, I'm being rejected, okay, that I can actually adjust to and say, okay, maybe next time I probably will leave a little earlier, but I'm glad I stayed, you know. But then there's also the idea that I may be feeling hurt like this because I've been rejected so many times and, you know, and could that be part of it? And so that's meaningful too. But the idea that someone sending me home is an automatic reject or someone telling me they don't have time for me on a particular day is a sign of rejection. Yeah, that's the stinking thinking part. That's the part I let go of. So you let go of that really well what I would add to that is there's some things to learn from it that could be useful. Like, you know, Hey, maybe right now it's good to kind of keep it to three or four hours. Maybe, maybe right now it's good to take a weekend off and just let, let each other, let us miss miss each other a little bit when we're just getting to know each other and kind of hungry for more, you know? And so, yeah, those are good life lessons. Um, In the end, what you learn is it's not almost never as bad as you thought it was. Right. I mean, in yeah. some way in that situation, and, and so that's one it was a step forward. Yeah, the horribleizing. Um, at worst, it's probably, you know, we, we might want to um, you know, admit that it's, yeah, that's, that wasn't particularly great. But it's rarely a disaster. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So well, number five. I told, I told her all about it. I wrote her a letter about it describing the whole thing. I love that. Because that's uh, the number one skill, I think, um, yeah. where, and for me, it's like, okay, this is my authentic self. Or actually I'm, maybe let it be like yeah. the reality of his. Yeah, just that. yeah, I, I struggled with that. And, and I'm just being real with you about, you know, my struggle. And, and I'm not blaming right. my struggle on you. I'm not making you responsible for my struggle. You know, if oh, anything, I said that in the letter too. Yeah. Yeah, this, and, and nothing, nothing that you did caused this. It's just this is my stuff. This is something I need to that I'm learning to heal from. You know, right. to some extent. So, um, number five um, is oh, this this is where you know I'm gonna get stuck. But I, what I used to call it is a little longer was um, know what really matters to you. Um, oh, know your why. Mm. What what really motivates you? What, what, what is your dream? What, what is the vision you have of the kind of life you want to have, you know, because I think a lot of us are too shoot from the hip in life. We're just waking up, going to work, you know, going through the grind without any sense of purpose to it all. And so this aspect of mindfulness is to get really clear about who do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to live? You know, what really matters to me? What is my why? And, um, and I think that's really important when it comes to dating, because we need to say, what kind of person am I? You know, my true self, not the phony baloney stuff that I do, that I've done in the past to get people to like me or to get people to leave me alone. But no, who am I really? And what really do I value in my relationships with other people, men, women, and children, that I really want to have in a relationship with another person? Um, and I think we need to get clear about that long before we go dating and just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah, that's why you know? we wrote intentional courtship is so that people would get yeah, it's intentional. meaningful about their their process. 
Yeah. And if I could put it into one word, intention is the word for that, for that skill, you know, Um, number six goes right along with it. Um, Number six is live the dream. Hmm. And number six, we call it committed action. It's in other words, take this vision of what's your why and now incorporate it into action. Okay. Live as if that is already your life you know i love that and so that's sort of the abundance mentality the idea that you know i am not going to wait for everything to be aligned um with my dream or my vision before i start living as if i am in that vision now here's the thing it's not fake it till you make it it's genuinely do it till you make it Mm -hmm. or be actually even make genuinely do it because you've already made it yeah you need to get to where you've already made it before you make it. So this would be maybe a good place for I am statements. I am. I think so. Yeah. That's, I am that's attracting great. my eternal partner, even if he's not here yet, even right. if I don't know who he is yet. I mean, I am is ideal for number one, because that's who I genuinely am. But it really, I am could work for your vision too. And for you already being <laughs> that person. Putting you those know, affirmations in the present. Yeah. And the only key to number six is action like make bring it alive you know i i used to call it bring your dreams to life you know like resuscitate them yeah knowing your why is the beginning of any creative endeavor including building your own life right yeah and then you take action in that direction uh there were some books i read by a guy that was a musician or some kind of artist and he wrote these books on psychology about being creative and about creating a better life for yourself. And he ended up doing that. Like his, his mission in life became to help people create a better life, but he used the principles of creating music and creating art. And, and he talked about these two principles, you know, you have to have a vision of what you're trying to create. And then you have to actually put the brush in the paint and put it onto the canvas. Mm-hmm. You actually have to take the pen and write the note onto the page, you know? And, and then you literally have to take the guitar and, and play it, you, you know, you have to bring it to life. And, and the, what he described, and I think it's, it, it's very consistent with these two principles, is create a vision and then be very honest about where you're at now. And that's sort of the, the number three, the, you know, acknowledge reality as it is now and it's almost like the dissonance between that vision and where you're at now will almost propel you toward the vision Mm -hmm. you know like it'll just be like i can't stand not being in that life or maybe even allow the editing along the way so it ends up maybe being a little different than you envisioned but still awesome Still right, right, right. Well, and that's his key was don't micromanage what you do along the way. Just let the vision pull you toward it. Yeah. And and don't get like, oh, I can't go there. I gotta go. No, no, no. Just go toward the vision. Go toward the vision. Because it's not like an artist is sitting there and painting by numbers and saying, Oh, I have to make this stroke right here, just like this. It's like I don't think Picasso or Monet or any of them were looking looking at art that way. Mm-hmm. I think they were just. I'm, I have my vision and I'm making my hands move in the ways that, oh, you know, and that kind of made it 
come to life, but I need to add more of this or add more of that. Well, it's and kind it, of exciting to have something come together when we don't know exactly how it's going to go, but we have a vision and we're doing the work and then it's going to be what it is and it's going to be amazing. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so those are very powerful. Those two, um, you know, having that vision and, and, and having enough intention to actually bring it to action. Number seven, we've already talked about. Um, I call number one and number eight, I call them the two miracle skills. Um, and here's why, if I'm good at number one, if I really see the light, I'll be good at all the other seven. I, I really will. My true self naturally does all eight of these skills. If I'm good at number eight, I can totally, uh, stink at all the other seven and eight will save me. Mm. Okay. okay eight is the red button it's the one you push when you're in trouble um <laughs> and what eight is is do the opposite okay and this is really interesting this is the closest thing to eight is do the opposite do the opposite <laughs> like george costanza <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not quite like that, but yeah. That's exactly what came to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's funny is that's actually a mindfulness concept or, or, or way of dealing with life. Um, but there's three steps that I tell people. One is you got to know you're in trouble. Know you're in trouble. Okay. I'm going to use Jeff's story just as an example. Okay. Um, she's rejecting me. Okay. Um, at that moment, if Jeff knew this skill, he would have said, how am I feeling right now? How am I doing? Oh, I'm super triggered. I'm overwhelmed. You know, I, I do not feel good right now. I'm feeling really hurt. You know, that kind of thing. Ooh, okay. Now ask yourself what you want to do when you're triggered. And he would have answered at that point, I want to break up with her. Okay. Um, okay. So now that you know what you want to do from your dark side, it's almost like when I'm on my dark side, I can't see north. I can only see south. But if I know where south is, I could, it will point me to north. I just go in the opposite direction. Right? Oh. So if I can't, if the, the north star is clouded, there are other constellations to the south that I can look to that will kind of give me an idea where the north star would be if I could see it. So then I say, what's the opposite of breaking up with her? Okay. And then guess what you text? Even right there. I really it was enjoyed fun being with you. Blah blah. Yeah, it was blah. so fun being with you and your kids. Thank you so much for having me over to your house, and I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, or like if you're so triggered you can't do that, maybe don't do anything yet. But here's the key to this skill: you have to do it while you're triggered. Really? Okay. Yes. Huh? Go for it. Go for it. Um, <laughs> Do the I'm absolute opposite you. while you're triggered. I love. Well, the yeah, absolute, wow. the absolute opposite would have been proposing marriage, and I don't think I would have done that. Uh, you know, I don't think the opposite. Of, I think proposing marriage is a much bigger decision than breaking up with somebody that you're still getting to know. But so instead, but, it's like sure. let's see how we can propel the relationship forward instead of going backwards. Yeah. Why don't I reaffirm the relationship instead of you know say that it's on the outs? You know, like what if I were to say. You know, and, and other, in other words, I can't even see how it's good right now. I feel so triggered and stuff like that. Hey, what if I just said something? What was good about the date? 
or, or good about this experience with her and her kids and just thank her for that rather than send the message that I don't know if this is going to work. Right. So if, if the feeling is that I don't know if this is going to work, explore the possibility that maybe this is going to work, you know, and like voice that share. Well, that. Ultimately it did. <laughs> exactly. And guess what? It was going to work every bit as much when you thought it wasn't as when right. you knew it would. And I think that's the thing is we, we make two mistakes when we go to extremes. One is we embrace stuff that we shouldn't. And the other is we reject stuff that we should embrace. Mm -hmm. And I've made both of those bad decisions in my life. Um, and not with Mary, I'm talking just with a lot of things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I've also made some good decisions where I've embraced exactly what I should have and rejected exactly what I should have. But um, and so the idea behind it is basically like, I'll give you an example from doing couples therapy. And this is from like over a decade ago, but a woman was, she had been in a previous marriage where she was abused. He, and he had physically hurt her. Okay. So needless to say, there's some PTSD. She's dealing with some triggers that are pretty intense. So she gets with, she's in a relationship with this other guy now who never would do that in a million years. He would never lay a finger on her. He was very respectful and kind, but they would disagree on occasion. And when they would, they'd have an argument and she'd slap him. It's like the argument would end with her slapping him. And I mean, to the point where he actually needed a chiropractic adjustment to his jaw one time. Oh my gosh. So like she slapped the crap out of him a couple of times and she would come in mortified. Like I have become my first husband. I, uh, this is not acceptable. I don't know why I go there. And he was like, I love her, but I don't know if I can be in a relationship with somebody who goes there just in an argument. And so I, we tried the other skills. I asked her, can we do the opposite? What would be, if you're triggered and you really want to slap him, what would be the opposite? And she brought up, um, well, yeah, she said, I, I'll, I'll give him a hug. And I said, no, 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 no. Like if you pushed him, giving him a hug would be the opposite. I, I want you to kiss him. And she's, there's no, there's no way. I'm, I'm not going to kiss him, you know, when I'm ready to slap him. Um, <laughs> and he even looked worried, like, please don't make her kiss me when she's, when she wants to slap. Me. I said, listen, you know, you don't have to do this, but I'm asking you to be open to the possibility. And one of the things that works with this skills, you have to pre-plan it because in the moment it might be hard to pull it off. Right. Right. Next thing I, next time I feel like breaking up with Kathy, um, when I feel rejected, I am consciously going to reaffirm the relationship. So that's what she did. She said, next time I feel like slap, when I feel all the feelings of slapping him, I'm going to kiss him. And they came back the next week. She sat down on that couch the next week. And it was like, there was a button on the couch that made her cry. She just started to sob. And, and it was happy tears, you know, it was good. And I just said, wow, what happened? And so therapy session, like on a Wednesday, Friday night, date night, you know, they come home and uh oh, argument and she could feel it. Okay. Coming. She tensed up like it's going to happen. And she grabbed him by the head, pulled his face in and kissed him. And I said, well, what happened? And I'll never forget that session. Um, she fought back the tears and she just said, everything good he has ever done for me flowed into my mind and into my heart. 
and it reaffirmed to me that this is not my first husband, okay? Um, that this is someone I can trust, this is someone I love, and that I am safe with him, okay? Now get this, okay? The five days between date night and the next session, not only no slapping, no arguing. Wow. Six month follow-up, no slapping, no arguing. So there's like a powerful shift that can come from doing- it, I'm telling you it's a miracle skill. And if you wanna know where, where it comes from in Christianity, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It, it's called turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile. Um, when they have taken your cloak, give them their coat too. You know, it's, it's kind of like, it makes absolutely no sense to the logical telestial mind, um, but it is literally celestial in nature. It's, it's this very giving way of treating things. And what you find is when someone expects you to slap them even figuratively and you kiss them, if you expect to slap them and you kiss them, it transforms both of you into something very different than you were before. And so that's why that's the red button. Wow, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so John, I, I, I'm stinking it up with the other seven, but I'm gonna push the red button, so. It, it strikes me with what you've just been telling. Yeah, that's sort of a mind blowing concept, but we tell people all the time um, when we're talking about being intentional in their relationships, you've got to decide in advance what you're going to do. Yep. Um, just like we tell our kids, decide in advance what you're going to do if you're offered drugs or right. whatever, because in the heat of the moment, you don't always make good decisions and it almost has to be automatic. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to kiss instead of slap or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think we're going to govern our relationships with intention or emotion and uh, emotion should always be there, but not necessarily in the driver's seat, you know? Right. Um, and to borrow your word, while I'm in my shalom, right. I, will, I will make a decision to be shalom in my shield. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a so good juxtaposition. That comes, I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> when that moment comes, I remember me. I, re I remember who I was when I wasn't triggered and I'm going to let him guide me now. Yeah. Well, and in our case, um, and we think this is good divorce proofing for most people because it's impossible to solve like conflict when your heart rates above a hundred beats per minute, at least with discussion. Well, and so we take timeouts and, and that's something we honor in ourselves with each other. And it, it helps so much because we do so much less damage. We, um, and then we can come to back together when we are peaceful. Yeah. When you're closer to that peace inside. Right. Know. And the nonchalant part of us is saying, I'm going to wait till I'm there to, to have this conversation so we can and that, it easily instead and of, you can really do it either way, you know, um, the opposite action thing is when there, a decision must be made, you know, on how I'm going to respond to this. And that you'd be surprised how many times. And, and well, and here's the other thing. Even if you don't have to respond and you can wait, it'll be more powerful if you can do the loving thing in the dark moment. Do the loving thing in the dark moment. I love yeah. it. Yeah. That will be more powerful. I think the importance of intention with that is 
every cell in your body is crying out to fight back or whatever, you know, yeah. to, to, to zing that witty comment that's going to really, you know, hit at the heart. <laughs> and and yep. in order to, to resist that impulse and do something different, I think that requires a lot of, um, well, intention, you know, beforehand. Yeah, and it's almost like an intention override in, in, in a really hard moment, you know. But here, here's the thing. The more loving I can be when it's hardest to be loving, the more powerful the love is. I do want to put out a caution. Um, if someone is truly mentally ill um, or has a personality disorder or is actively addicted, and, and impaired in their judgment, this will not work, okay? In fact, I would submit to you that as far as them responding as a responsible, loving adult, um, none of it will work. And that's where you gotta go back to number two and just say, I can't make someone respond appropriately to any of these things. These eight skills are for me. It could even be, I can't make myself respond in a responsible way if I'm impaired. Right, right. Um, and, and Jeff and I both dealt with um, clinical depression and anxiety. And, and so right. to some degree, we have to know ourselves and what we need to do in order to show up better. Right. You know, and so I do think it's possible to behave in happy ways when we're uh, depressed, though I don't want that to sound like I'm painting on a mask because that's not what we're talking about. I can tell someone, although with, let's give an example, like a five-year-old, I, I really can't tell them I'm depressed and that's why I'm not loving you well. You know, I, I mean, at some point they don't care what the reason is. They, they just need the love, you know? And so I think, especially moms, I think are really good at this, at lo loving us anyway, even though they feel exhausted and they're at the end of the rope and they can't do it. And I think great dads do that too. Um, but at some point, that number eight is about, I'm going to love you anyway. Um, I feel exhausted. I don't feel I can love you the way you need to be loved. And I'm, I, but I am unwilling, you know, there are times when I do need to take my rest, where I do need to take a step back, but I can't do that every day forever. Yeah. At some point, I need to step up and love you well. And for me to do that, if I'm still in a funk, I may need to do the opposite. Yeah. I mean, to say, I'm going to love my husband or wife or my children or my neighbor in a way that feels very unnatural to me at the time, you know, and, um, and, and I don't think that's being hypocritical or painting a, a mask on our face or anything like that. Um, so let, let me ask you something. Uh, you talked about mental illness a minute ago, and it will not work with somebody that's in that situation. Now, I think it is quite common. Um, I mean, a lot of women that I dated during my mid single years, uh, I, I would even say uh, a large majority would tell me the story that they had been married to a narcissist. Um, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those are just sort of armchair quarterback diagnoses. Um, but what's the difference between somebody with strong opinions and a narcissist? You know I mean? How, how do you distinguish? Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, I like I prefer to use narcissistic traits, you know, that like that are obvious, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Here's here's the thing. There are a lot of reasons why we we give in to narcissistic traits. Some of them are PTSD ourselves. You know, we've been through, we've been abused sometimes by nar- true true narcissists, you know. Um, and then we adopt, you know, some of those tactics ourselves. But um so I here's the thing. There's NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. That's a diagnosis where you have to fit a lot of criteria. I, I don't equate that with being necessarily a narcissist. To me, someone who's very narcissistic may not fit all the criteria for the diagnosis, but they're still pretty toxic, you know, and, and there are a lot of things about their life that you can tell, you know, um, alienated relationships from anywhere from their spouses to their kids to their, you know, um, or people walking on pins and needles, people playing to them, but then talking bad about them behind them, you know. Uh, there's all kinds of things that can show up that, that are just signs, you know, that they are really not holding those, those traits in very well. Um, they're having a hard time holding it together. Um, what I would say is I still think that truly narcissistic people are a minority, but they are a growing minority. Um, I think that traditionally men were more narcissistic and they would you would consider men of the personality disorder cluster b personality disorders women more borderline men more narcissistic i think men and women are catching up to each other in both categories to be honest with you um i i just think like and maybe that's a reflection of this dark world maybe that's the pride cycle you know, another way of saying that pride will be your downfall is another way of saying narcissism will be your downfall, whatever word you want to give it. It's, it's almost like entrenched pride, you know, and that pride isn't because you feel great about yourself, just to be clear. It's because you feel horribly about yourself, um, that you feel incredibly um, inadequate. And that's why you have to pr- prop up this image um, And I think in a world where a lot of us have been abused, a lot of us become more narcissistic than we normally would be. Either that, so that's one extreme, or we become incredibly victim stance. You know, like I'm helpless, I'm, you know, I can't, you know, I'm just always gonna be taken advantage of when we crawl into a corner, you know? So that might be sort of the difference between more of an avoided personality disorder, be more victim stance and a a anxious attachment disorder, attachment style would be more narcissistic you know or like i demand this from you or you need to love me or you that kind of thing um although they're not those don't mesh perfectly um there are many people who have an anxious attachment style that i wouldn't say are necessarily narcissistic they're definitely demanding can be very demanding though but part of that is because they're being abandoned so we gotta have i think we need to have a lot of compassion for people um, I'd rather talk about traits than who someone is. Right. Um, I will say of all the traits, narcissistic traits are probably the most ingrained and the hardest to overcome once you go there. And so, yeah. And, and part of the reason for that is um, it's what we call egocentric, meaning that you think you're normal. And whenever you think you're normal and you're not, you the likelihood of you changing is is remote um ego dystonic is when i know it's not normal i know something's wrong with me i need help you know 
So some disorders like depression or anxiety disorders, we know that we need help, like something's wrong. But the good part of that is then we get help. There's, there's more hope that we can overcome that. With personality disorders, there's no sense that I need. If you think something's wrong with me, that's your problem. Mm -hmm. and like okay good luck you know when you were talking about number eight i there's a few instances that came to mind when i think i've done that but without realizing i was doing it um and, and maybe you can tell me if this is accurate so people at, who are listening can decide if you know like for themselves if if what you know they've experienced is is that or not um First, first thing I can think of is I was really tempted to get very upset about a person who had, um, who was associated with a, a kind of an ugly part of my divorce. And I ran yeah. into the church and I was kind of spiraling in my thoughts and kind of just getting really, I, I could tell I, I was trying, kind of going to that place where I was going to really focus in on that for several days and, you know, not right. forget about it. And then I just decided, you know what, mm -hmm. who cares? doesn't matter. It was just a trigger and I let it go. And that was inside myself. I didn't do yeah. anything different. I don't think. Yeah, you didn't have the three little steps and, you know, oh, I'm in trouble. What would I want to do from my troubled spot? Oh, let's do the opposite. You just naturally did it. Yeah. And then and same thing like with the breakup, like I was tempted to kind of go into the, all the, um, like, why did this happen? I don't think that that was fair of them or what, you know, just, just tempted to get upset. And then I remembered something that a dating partner had told me about how um, plants have the ability to take poison and create life with it. And I went out and I picked uh, a, a leaf from a tree and I, I put it in a book and I, you know, and I just, and I like, I kind of keep that as a reminder to radically accept what is. And instead of trying to figure it all out. Right, right. That, yeah, that's a, that's a simple example of it. It's just when I want to overanalyze it, doing the opposite is I'm going to simplify it. I'm just going <laughs> to, or I'm just going to let it flow out of me, or I'm going to put it like a book on a shelf. For now, if I feel like I got to revisit it, but I don't have to deal with it. I don't have I know, to deal with it right now. I know in college, sometimes we'd write down our troubles and we'd put it behind the ketchup and we'd say, nope, that's behind the ketchup. Not thinking about that. <laughs> and now you now you have that phrase, it's behind the ketchup, right? Behind the ketchup. And then yeah. with our relationship, I was thinking, well, maybe one of the things we could do on occasion, instead of taking timeouts, if we're like not to the point where we need that, is um, I've I have I've had this strong feeling for a long time that if you can touch, then you can work things out. And if you and I think there's this tendency, I don't want to touch you because I'm so upset. Right. right. Maybe the opposite would be okay. We're gonna sit close instead of across the room, and we're gonna touch each other while we're talking so we connect. Yeah, I mean that can work. And and you're right. It's. Listen, this is an art form, not a science. Kiss him instead of slapping. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, we're not that extreme. So I was thinking. Remember, I didn't tell her she had to do it. I just said, explore the pre-plan it and then explore the possibility of doing it. That's all. Yeah. You know, and and then 
you know, to the guy, you know, be willing to let her and not think she's gonna, you know, knee you in the groin or something in the middle of it or anything. But it'd be scary for him. But he's like, yeah, he's kind of like, oh, now she's even closer. You know, what's she gonna do? Um, and and they went with it. You know, when the time came, she had prepared enough, and they went with it, and it worked. And and I would say it works way more than it doesn't work. You know, unless, but that if it doesn't work, that could be kind of like that could be a sign that, you know, one of two things, either we're not in the, we, we weren't in a good enough state of mind, or maybe there's, I'm with someone who can't get in the state of mind to receive that kind of miracle uh, skill from me. Right. And, and that's okay. Too. That, that's a good life lesson to learn before you marry him for sure. Um, yeah. Well, and, you know, going back to number one, which you said would will help, you know, following six be and a lot more doable more naturally uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting because when you first brought it up in this interview which has been great by the way and we really appreciate all oh, the suggestions that you've made I think I, I took notes I hope our listeners will take notes <laughs> um, yeah yeah I I guess I it was and it's interesting that a year ago when we started Lilypod, we the, some one of the first series we did in fact the first series I think it was episodes five, six, seven, something like that. Um, I honestly don't quote me on that, but it, we did cultivating love for God, culti- cultivating love for self and cultivating love for others. And it was based on the great commandments you brought up in the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, I really appreciate the something you added to, I think what we've already been expressing is that um, not just loving just not having this vague concept of loving ourselves, but loving ourselves as we are and really remembering who we are and, mm-hmm. and coming home to that. And I think yeah. it was kind of a concept that came to me while we were doing those episodes, this idea that that loving energy that flows to us from God and through us to others is right loving energy we can live in and it's all harmonious it's not they're not it's not competitive it's all and each one of those things is very important because as we love god more we love ourselves and others more and and when we love ourselves more we love i mean you can see through these eight steps Mm -hmm. we start loving better yeah we understand who we are and and we're compassionate i think so I, when I think of loving myself, I, I almost want to divide it into two kinds of love because I think I'm more than one kind of person, you know, like the poet says, I am multitudes, you know, um, listen, at my darkest, I am bitter, angry, um, depressed in despair. I hate people. I am ugly, um, in a spiritual, emotional sense. Um, and I don't love that part of me, but I do have compassion for that part of me. Okay. Yeah. And I, you could say that that compassion for that part of me is a way of loving my dark side. Okay. Without justifying him or presuming that he is who I am, I have compassion for him. But when I think of the admiration of love or like the, wow, what an amazing person, that's the real me. You know, I don't admire the dark me, but the bright side of me, I admire him. I really have a lot of love for who he is and who he's become through his challenges. 
but that's sort of like you know like the buddhists would call it the buddha nature or or we would call it being christ-like you know that christ-like part of me is worthy of of my admiration and everyone else's admiration okay you have compassion for your humanity like the stuff you yes it is is not that right and that flows from my understanding of the gospel too i you know i am I understand that I am a child of God, that I am a, a God in embryo, that I am a, a spiritual being. But I also understand that I'm, I've been placed in this natural man body, uh, a telestial body that represents kind of the, as beautiful as, as a body can be, it still represents something that's mortal, that can fail, that, that is imperfect, you know, and all those things. And so I got to remember both. I got to remember that I, I'm going to have compassion. So putting it in, in our terms um, as members of the church, I have compassion for my natural man, but I don't trust him to guide my life. Um, I have trust in my spiritual man mm -hmm. and I'm willing to let him guide my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm willing to let him guide my life is he's deeply connected to the only being that I trust, which is Christ. Mm -hmm. So. And that goes back to an episode we did on my personal definition of humility is sober confidence. It's sobering to know I'm human and that I can't do it all on my own. And I have so much confidence in the, that light that we have in us. Absolutely. And yeah. um, I'll just clarify for the audience sake, in case anybody wants to go back and listen and maybe explore number one of yours more with our podcast. It was num episode number two is God is love. So are we. At, followed by relationship priority based on the two great commandments and then cultivating love for God's self and others. And that's episodes two through six. So it was actually a series of five. And that that was the first thing on our minds that we felt was so important. And it's interesting. Yeah, I love that. That's also your first step. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. The foundational things. So I got one more question uh, before we wrap up. Um, you've laid out these eight um skills now do you as a therapist can you apply them to yourself and and <laughs> if so like is there something you can say as a double divorcee like us that gives people hope that hey it's going to be okay for me it can be okay for you you know anything like that yeah well and and listen these skills are I don't want to make it sound like these skills are to let, like live the perfect life or anything like that. There, really, there's two purposes to them. It's to survive the hard parts and to truly enjoy the, the, the great parts, you know, or the easy parts of life, you know? Um, so, you know, I mean, listen, it wasn't too long ago when I was going through one of the darkest periods of my life. And it's, it's not the only one. I've been through a few dark periods in my life. Ironically, I don't think after the first divorce, that was one of those dark periods, you know, just because that marriage had lasted so very long. I mean, 26 years. And then it was almost like it was anticipated years in advance. But, but there have been some dark times in my life where these skills just helped me survive. You know, it wasn't a matter of I was like some amazing, mindful, you know, guru kind of guy. I was just like, I'm going to get up and I'm going to eat my breakfast and I'm going to walk out there and go to work. And I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And and what helped me was be here now, 
just do your best right now, you know, make room for whatever's coming in your life, you know, um, keep that vision of what your life can be. Um, don't let the darkness of now keep you from seeing that light, you know, and stuff like that was just survival mode. Now that I feel really healed and like I'm doing really well, I am just savoring it all, you know, like, and now, you know, every, you know, fun date or, or every, um, you know, every success or every time where I'm not only surviving, but I'm really like having fun doing my work or yeah, it's just like, wow, it, it just, these skills just help me enjoy it that much more and really take the time to smell the roses kind of thing. And, um, so hopefully people will use it both ways. Don't feel like I got to be some kind of guru to make these work. It's like, no, 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 you can be, you can really struggle. You might be leaning on number eight a lot, uh, you know, <laughs> as you go through your hard times, kind of like, oh, I really want to do that, but I'm going to do this instead. Um, but I think the most important one, find yourself, you know, through, especially in your dark times, you know, um, like the quote from conference recently, you know, when, when you're going through a hard time, go toward the savior, not away from him. And that includes the savior within yourself, you know, the Christ-like version of you inside yourself. Um, don't let anything that happens to you or anything that anyone says to you or how they treat you convince, or what you do convince you that you are incapable of reconnecting to that Christ-like nature inside of you. So I love that. And, you know, I, I always say that our value are as, as sons and daughters of God does not change no matter what happens in our lives, no matter what, right. we think or what anyone else thinks it's always, that value is always there. And I think that's what you're saying. And I right. the impression as you were talking about these, that you do apply them. And I appreciate that you shared the difference in which you have ex ways in which you've experienced it. And so that our audience can, wherever they are, can, can use them either, like you said, to survive the hard times or to really enjoy the good times and, and probably a combination of both throughout our lives. Right. No, we need both. Yeah. You know? Like when I've had people that I struggle with or that I, you know, I, I no longer have in my life because I just don't feel like, you know, that that's a good force in my life. I will still pray. I will say, help them find themselves, help them return to God, to you, you know, and whether that be by a blessing or a curse, you know, I'm going to leave it up to God to, to decide what they need. You know, it, that is not for me to say, and I pray the same for myself. If I need more hardship to learn the lesson, I hope I don't, but if I do, I'm willing to take that, you know, and have that cup not pass from me, but I would love it if a blessing was in order, you know, to help me, you know, and I think we need both. Sometimes we need to just be loved and sometimes we need a swift kick in the pants, but um, in the end, we'll just be loved, you know, when all is said and done, you know, and um, so, yeah, I, I'm just doing the best I can to live a fulfilling life and trying to help as many people as I can do the same. Yeah. And, thank you. And can you tell us what these eight rules are like? I, we should have probably started with this at the beginning, but we'll end with it. I mean, what uh, what do you call these eight principles? You know, I've called them many things over the years, but um, so really right now I call them more kind of like the eight skills of the one mind tribe. You know, they're the one mind tribe skills um, because I've aligned them with that organization. And, you know, I have another whole 
um, more of a spiritual um, thing that I teach that has seven skills or seven principles related to that. And that's a whole different thing. But yeah, these are the one mind tribe skills, you know, and, um, and they're related to mindfulness and yeah, um, being able to create happiness after sadness or like goodness after loss. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I call it one mind tribe because it's a group of people that are trying to help each other, almost like a, you know, like a support system, you know, to help with mental health when we don't really need therapy or have the resources to do therapy indefinitely. And, um, but, you know, a self-help book just ain't cutting it, you know, it'd be nice to have people that have similar skills that they're working on and, and then help each other work on them. It's um, like humanity support because we're all in this together. Yeah. We're all in this together. So, um, yeah. And, and those skills are perfect for that. If we all got really good at those, um, this world would be a different place, you know, uh, a much better place, I like to think. So if our if our listeners want to find you or your one mind tribe or whatever, how should they go about that? So I, I don't have a website yet. I do have a Facebook page, a couple of Facebook pages, but yeah, look for one mind tribe on Facebook. And there's just some posts on each one of these skills from like a few months ago. Um, so I'm not a prolific content creator <laughs> just yet. So a lot of what I do has been with people like former clients and stuff where we kind of get together, whether it's online or, um, or even by phone and stuff and do some coaching and then do group stuff together. Um, but I really do want to expand it. So there will be a website someday and the domain name onemindtribe.com is mine. And so um, you can keep looking for it and, and someday it'll just show up. It'll be like, oh my gosh, there's a, a website now. More information that people can find on One Mind Tribe because I'm sure it's because they're lifelong skills. I'm sure that yeah. you'll need reminders and helpful hints and, you know, and, but this has been yes. a great, I think, overall view of them. So. Yes. And, and my true self, like he will have, he would have it all done five years ago. But <laughs> although I, you know, my dark self is kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. You know, he's the one, you know, so pray for my dark side that he'll like, you know, uh, let go of the perfectionism and that kind of stuff and just do the darn thing and, and let people have a better resource. So it's funny you would say that because my, my son once did a Star Wars concert and they had Vader come and talk to the kids about the dark side of practicing violin. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. You can just kick Vader out of your life. <laughs> yes. There's the dark side of creating this community, you know, but it, it's coming slowly but surely. I think what matters most is that it came, it, it's come to fruition inside of me, mm -hmm. you know, and if I'm the one that needs to bring this to life, if that's my calling in life, you know, that's where it needed to start anyway. And I hate to say it, but I needed adversity. I, I really did. I, I learned so much for the two women I've been married to, from my children, from a lot of people, um, sometimes by their great examples, sometimes by their, the hardships they brought into my life. Um, and, and I'm sure that I taught them plenty of lessons both ways as well. And, um, and, and all of those life experiences have just led to what's happening now. And it's really beautiful. So anyway. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much John. Dr. Yeah, it was great to be with you guys. Has been our guest. And uh, remember, folks, anytime is a great time for more love in your life.
Thank you for listening. Subscribe to LilyPod and get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a positive review. We want to reach as many mid-singles and later married couples as possible, so please share this podcast with those you love. To access fabulous free content like written articles and YouTube videos on LilyDube, and to learn about our book Intentional Courtship and Lily Coaching Services, visit loveinlateryears.com.